0: Y'all, how is it going? It has been forever since I have gotten to preach to y'all. I'm so excited. It's been three weeks. I've missed you guys. I've loved getting to take a little bit of a break, but let me tell you, when other people come to preach, it reminds me how much I love it and how much I love you guys. So I'm so excited to start this new sermon series with you, and I'd like to start it in a way that's totally unrelated to the sermon series, just because I'm curious. Um, How many of you are under the impression that it is now Christmas time? All right, and how many of you say post-Thanksgiving? That's kind of where you land. All right, awesome. So we know who we're going to add to the prayer list after it's all said and done with, the people who think it's Christmas right now. All right, awesome. Hey, well, listen, um, Mac told you guys at the beginning of, uh, of our time together that we are starting a new sermon series tonight, and um, the sermon series is titled The Designer. The Designer. And um, that's not very, like, obvious as to what we're uh, going to be talking about just based off of that title. So I'll tell you, Mac mentioned it earlier, uh, what we're going to be walking through over the course of these next three weeks is we're going to be talking specifically about Gender roles, gender roles, like like the fact that God has specifically designed gender, male and female, in such a way that he has given specific responsibilities, specific traits, specific characteristics to each one. And so I'll kind of give you the direction that we're going to be going tonight. We're going to really lay a foundation and we'll tell you what that's going to be here soon. But next week, we're going to talk about God's design for man. And then the following week after that is Thanksgiving, and as much as I know all of you would love to have Revive on Thanksgiving, we're actually going to give you Thanksgiving off, so uh, you're welcome. But the week after that, that's December 1st, we're going to talk about woman's design. And so uh, tonight, like I said, we're laying the foundation, and then we'll have man's design and woman's design. And I want to go ahead and just tell you up front, um, this is not like the kind of sermon series where you just like elbow your boyfriend and say, yeah, did you hear that? You need to be a man. That's not what this is. I don't, so I don't want to hear like, yeah, preach it. Uh, and, you know, you're shooting eyes across the room, anything like that. Matter of fact, when we're not talking about your gender, uh, you do not get a free pass. And we'll talk more about what that looks like. But uh, this is an opportunity for if you're a lady and we're talking about God's design for men. This is an opportunity for you uh, to take some notes and break those things out when you start the search for that guy that might be your husband one day. Uh, for that guy that might be the father of your children one day. Uh, And the same thing when we talk about woman's design, fellas, you don't get uh, a free pass either for that night. So I'm so excited to see what the Lord has in store. Um, It was not, genuinely, I did not plan on this to fall around election season, but here we are. God works in mysterious ways, right? Uh, So, I'm I'm really excited. I want you to turn to Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17 is where we're going to be tonight. And like I told you, tonight we're simply laying the groundwork for what we're going to be talking about over the next few weeks. And uh, as you're turning to Acts chapter 17, I want to tell you where we're at in Scripture at this point in time. So uh, Paul in Acts 17 is on his second missionary journey. The Apostle Paul took three missionary journeys over the course of his ministry, uh, which means that he just went and visited a lot of different places and shared the gospel. And Paul is on his second missionary journey, and uh, he's waiting for his partners in ministry, Timothy and Silas. And he's waiting in a very wicked place, a, a very sinful place, a place called Athens. Go figure. I mean crazy. Paul is waiting in, in Athens for Ty, uh, Timothy and Silas to join him. And um, what I, what I want to do is pick up in verse 16, and we're going to read a little bit, and then I'm going to stop and explain to you uh, what's going on, and then we'll jump into uh, our, the bulk of what we're talking about tonight. So read with me in verse 16. It says in Acts chapter 17, verse 16, now while Paul was waiting for them in Athens. And they brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? For, uh, for, for you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all the Athenians and uh, foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except uh, telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens... I perceive that in every way you're very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. And we're going to stop right there on that cliffhanger, okay? So let's, let's talk about what has happened so far, and then we'll jump into the bulk of what we're going to be talking about tonight. So, uh, again, Paul's waiting in Athens, that wicked, wicked place. And uh, he is, uh, he's going to the synagogues and the marketplace, and he's basically sharing the good news of Jesus. Well, the thing about Athens is there are a lot of, like, philosophers that are, uh, that are all over the place at this time. They really valued wisdom and like, uh, literature and fine arts, and so when they heard this guy Paul talking about something that sounded new, sounded interesting to them, uh, they asked Paul what he was preaching, and there's two specific groups called the Epicureans and the Stoics, which uh, I'll explain a little bit more in detail to you later, but those were simply philo- kind of uh, different sects of philosophy. And so they heard what Paul was preaching, and uh, they decide, we need to hear more about what this guy is saying. So they take him to this place called the Areopagus. Now, we don't have an Areopagus in Dahlonega or North Georgia at all, for that matter. So you're probably wondering, what in the world is that? So the Areopagus is uh, it's this place that is at a very high point in the city. And the Areopagus is where uh, the, the, the Greek people would go to like debate and literally have like judicial courts surrounding issues of religion and, and thought and philosophy. And so they bring Paul to this place to stand in front of a group of philosophers. And they're kind of just hearing his case. They want to know, what is it, Paul, that you're sharing? And so they take him to the, the Areopagus and Paul stands in front of of these people, boldly as he always does, and he tells them this kind of interesting thing. He basically says, listen, as I was walking through Athens, I noticed that you guys have statues of gods all over the place. He's like, I can tell because of that you're a very religious people. But I also noticed something that was kind of interesting. You had this statue that, that looked like a god. It was, it was like crafted just like all the other statues. But I, I noticed the nameplate at the bottom of it. And it reads, to the unknown God. And so what Paul is going to do is he's going to use this as kind of a launch pad to talk about uh, Jesus, to talk about the good news of the gospel. And the reason that the Greek people even had this in their city to begin with uh, is the fact that way back when, in ancient Greece, there was this plague that took place. And the, the Greeks had all kinds of different gods and uh, divinities that they would worship and cry out to in times of trouble. And so they're, they're in this plague, and they start crying out to all these different gods, and they get absolutely nowhere. Go figure, right? And so they get nowhere. So literally, after they have exhausted all their resources, they start making idols to unknown gods, and then praying to those idols saying, please help us. And that's the reason that these things existed in that day. But Paul looks at it and goes, so that inscription, that, that idol to the unknown God, he says, you're right in thinking that there's a God out there that you don't know. But let, let me tell you that the God that you're thinking of He's not just one God that exists among many others. He is the only one true God. And Paul basically says, let me tell you about him. And so what we're going to see tonight is, again, the foundation, the groundwork. And it's through Paul's message to these philosophers uh, that we're going to, to lay that foundation together. Again, in this series, we're going to be talking about how God has designed a role in which all men and women are to function. And so tonight, we have to, we, we have to build that, uh, those things that we're going to talk about on a steady ground, on a good foundation. And so tonight, what I want to share with you through Paul's message to these philosophers is, is very simple. These are, these are two truths that you need if you're going to take hold of God's design for you. Two truths that you absolutely need if you are going to take a hold of God's design for you. And the first truth is this, is that God is designer. God is designer. Read with me in Acts chapter 17 in uh, verse 24. This is the start of Paul's argument. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. So let's stop there. I think this is really interesting. See, the first and foremost thing that Paul wants to communicate to these philosophers may not be what you would think. The first and foremost thing that he begins with here is that he's basically making the case that God created everything. That God created everything. I love the way that this passage is phrased in the NLT. I want you to take a look at it here on the screens with me. It says in the NLT, from one man, He Oh, actually, that is not the NLT. Can you jump to the next slide there, Lauren, in verse uh, 24? There we go. Okay, he is the God who made the world and everything in it. Since he is Lord of heaven and earth, he does not live in man-made temples. Jump to 25. We're gonna go through 26. And human human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. He himself gives life and breath To everything, and he satisfies every need. It says, from one man, he created all the nations throughout the whole earth. He decided beforehand when they should rise and fall, and he determined their boundaries. Now, I don't know if you picked up on there all of those different verb choices. That's kind of the reason. This is like Bible nerd kind of thing, but like that's kind of the reason that I love the NLT versus the ESV in in this particular text, is all those verbs that Paul uses. He basically says, God made, God created, God satisfies, God decides. And he's using these things as grounds to argue to these Athenian people. He's emphasizing there is nothing that exists that was not created by the careful hand of Almighty God. Everything on the planet that you lay your eyes on can at some point be traced back to a to a time when it was spoken into existence by our God. Every single thing. And I I want you to know that hearing this would not have been an incredibly revolutionary thing to this group of people. And I know that's kind of weird, but like literally they would have heard this, Paul saying, Yeah, God created everything, that he's the sustainer, that he's the creator they would have heard this and gone, okay. And the reason why is because, again, they had hundreds of gods. They had their own myths of creation. They had their own idea for how the world came to be. Matter of fact, I don't know if anybody in here is into Greek mythology, but I did a little bit of research to try to figure out, like, to them, what did creation look like? It's very interesting. So there's multiple myths out there, but the one that I liked the most uh, was this. To the Greeks... At the beginning of time, there was a god, and his name was Chaos. And Chaos uh, existed, and he existed alongside of another god that was a bird. A bird with black wings, a god bird that went by the name of Nix. And Nix and Chaos came together, and Nix laid an egg. Because Nix is a bird, remember? And so Nix laid an egg. And then Nix decided that uh, it was going to sit on the egg for a long period of time. And as the story goes, in that egg, life started to stir. And when that egg hatched, the top half of the egg became the sky, and the bottom half of the egg became the earth. And that's how the world was created to these people. Not Not too different from our creation account, right? Pretty similar to Genesis. See... It wouldn't have been a revolutionary thing for these people to hear, oh, God created the world. What would have been a revolutionary thing is to hear that God didn't just create the world, but that he designed the world. And that's why Paul uses such articulate words here. That's why he makes such a, a case uh, that God is, is creator, that he sustains, that he, he gives life and breath. See, the Epicureans, remember I told you I was going to talk about those two groups of people, these, these Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, they thought that God, or of gods, plural, uh, the Epicureans thought that, that the gods existed, but that they didn't really interfere in the lives of human people. And the Stoics, they thought that everything was God. And so they thought, as long as like I'm treating uh, the birds and the trees and the rocks and all of that stuff, as long as I'm treating the earth well, God is pleased with me. That's kind of what they thought when it came to God and when it came to creation. But Paul wants these people to see a God that, is not, that didn't just create the world— but a God that is intimately involved with every aspect of their lives. A God that didn't just wind up the universe or haphazardly hatch the universe from an egg and and then let it go, let let it figure it out on its own, but a God that puts the same amount of intentionality and purpose into everything that he creates, and he sustains it while he does it. In other words, the message that Paul is giving to these philosophers is this. You weren't just created, but you were designed. And that's what I want us to see tonight. As we lay that that groundwork for moving forward, talking about what it looks like to be a man in terms of God's design and and a woman in terms of God's design, we, we need to understand that, that God did not just create us, but he designed us. And so I want us to see that tonight. I, I want you to take a look at, at this picture that's going to come up on the screens here. Not that, next. Okay, this. Okay, very funny. All right, so this here is the Milky Way galaxy. That is our home. That's like where we live right now, Okay. So this is, uh, you can probably see it even better on this picture. This is actually the center of the Milky Way galaxy, all right? And according to scientists, this is a, a picture that NASA actually just released from one of their new telescopes. Uh, this is like the most clear picture of the center of the Milky Way galaxy that exists. And scientists tell us that inside of the Milky Way galaxy, there are over 200 billion stars, Over 200 billion stars. Literally, if you were to count every star in the Milky Way galaxy, if you were to start now and count one star every single second of every single day and just keep on going, you would be counting for over two and a half years before you even got close to counting them all. I mean, that is mind-blowing. And this is just the Milky Way. Uh, According to scientists, there are hundreds and thousands of other galaxies out there just like this one. I remember whenever we were um, on our camping trip a few weeks ago, myself and some of the other guys, well, it's kind of a, a lot of us went out there, but uh, we do this thing where we hike up to the top of the mountain that we camp at uh, in, the, in the middle of the night, like midnight kind of thing, and uh, we hike up to the top, and it's this beautiful panoramic like 360-degree view of the night sky. And out where we camp, there's no light pollution. I mean, it's absolutely beautiful. So myself and some of the other guys, I remember, we're we're like sitting back on this rock, and we just kept on seeing shooting stars. I mean, it it was absolutely beautiful, mind-blowing. And I don't know if you've ever had an opportunity to see the the night sky in in that sort of an environment, or you look at pictures like this. I don't know what it is for you, but like for me, and I think for all of us, we see things like that and it's just mind-blowing mind-blowing the design of our creator that literally god he he spoke the words let there be light and that was the result that is crazy 200 billion stars in our galaxy alone like when god spoke at the speed of light Every bit of those came into existence. All of that just by the mouth of God. But here's the cool thing. All of that came from the mouth of God. But when it comes to me and you, when we look at what scripture says about how God created us, he created us with his hands. That's really significant. It tells us that in Psalm chapter 139. It says, For you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. Like, with his hands, he made us. With his mouth, he spoke creation into existence. But with his hand, we are hand-made pieces of art from Almighty God. I remember um, this past summer... Aaliyah and I, we went on a, a cruise. I think I've told you guys about this a little bit. And uh, one of the places that we stopped was Nassau, Bahamas. And in Nassau, there's this straw market. And a straw market is basically where like, local people can come and set up shops. They have little businesses, and they sell like, uh, different pieces of art and T-shirts and all sorts of different things. And they sell it for ridiculous prices, by the way. Uh, but we're walking through the straw market and we're kind of uh, just looking at the different things that they have and we come across this lady who is selling these big like conch shell things you guys know what those are like the big like huge shells and um, these conch shells had been made into different like um, like different house items like spoons and and forks and different things that were really cool and so uh, we're standing there looking at them and Aaliyah finds this one piece it's like a conch shell that has been turned into like a gravy boat thing. And um, she thought it was the coolest thing ever. And it was absolutely beautiful. And so I asked the lady that was running the little booth, I, I was like, hey, how much for this piece? And the lady looks at us and she says, oh, that's $50. $50 for a shell. And so we're like, all right, that's great. Thank you. Have a, have a wonderful day. And so we kind of keep on looking around uh, this, this little uh, stand that she had. And we found one that was really, that was really similar. It wasn't like as nice, but, but pretty similar, had some of the same features. And, and I asked the lady, hey, how much is this? And she said $10. I was like, okay, so let's compare here, all right? This one, about this, like, these two are very similar. This one, you said $40. This one, you said $10. And they're kind of the same thing, right? So, so would you take this one that you're saying $40, would you take $10 for it? And she was like, no, sorry, I can't do that. They're not the same. And I was like, ma'am, they're they're pretty similar. And she she got frustrated, and she ended up, like, taking them from us, and and she looked at us both. And, like, you could tell that it, like, kind of messed with her a little bit. I guess maybe people don't, maybe I just drove a really hard bargain. I don't know. But she looked at us, and she said, no, I'm not going to sell it to you for any less than what I've already asked. And the reason is because these are incredibly valuable because I made them by hand. This was like her business. Th- this other one that was like 10 bucks, she had actually bought it off of somebody else, and she was trying to sell it. It was made by some machine somewhere. But, but this one that she was trying to sell for a much higher price, she, she put effort into it. She put work into it. She took her hands and physically made this piece of art. And she says, because of that, there is this inherent value that is placed on it because it is made by hand. And God would say the same thing about you. He would say, for you, I I put work and intention into making you, that I knit you together in your mother's Womb, and because of that, you are so valuable to me. Your your the price for you is totally different than the rest of creation. Because for you, I made you with my hands. God designed us. The thing about items that are handmade is not only uh, that they come with a, a different value, but they're also always made with a purpose. They're they're always made with a purpose. Psalm 139 verse 16 says that. It says it very clearly. It says, you saw me before I was born. Every day of my life was recorded in your book. Every moment was laid out before a single day had passed. In other words, God, God, from the very beginning, being outside of time, has seen every single day of your life and has planned each and every moment. God is a designer. He, he knit you together in your mother's womb, and he did so with a purpose. And what I'm trying to get you to see, and what Paul is trying to get these people here to see, is that God personally and purposefully made you, and that you are of immense value to him. And this is a crucial foundation that we have to establish if we're going to talk about God's design For man and woman over the next few weeks. See, the reason that tonight we didn't just launch into talking about God's design for man is because I think that if we did, for a lot of people, it might have really frustrated you. Like there might have been some things that you heard and you're like, okay, that, like, I I don't get that. I, I want no part in that. And I think that the reason for that is because of the reality of where we currently are as a culture. That, that in terms of culture, like we've missed this, that God is the designer. And so we had to take some time to build that foundation because culture it would say that it's your life and you get to live it how you want. Culture would say that you, you get to be whatever you want. You get to write the rules. It, it, it says that you get to identify as whatever you want, that you're the one in charge so you can make whatever you want happen. And we have to start, as followers of Jesus, countering that lie. We we have to counter that lie by very clearly saying that God is the designer. That that he didn't just create everything, but he designed everything. That, That he did so with a very specific purpose. And as designer of all things, he is also the definer of all things. And that's our second truth tonight. That not only is God the designer of all things, but because he is the designer of all things, he is also the definer of all things. You know, I remember when I was first reading this passage, like I was I was reading through Paul's response. I was like really trying to put myself in Paul's shoes and I struggled with why in the world he would begin this argument by talking about God as the creator. Like I'm going, Paul, you literally go from town to town and share the gospel. Like that is like it's it's second nature to you. Why is it that in this place you don't start with Jesus? I mean, that's that's what he does everywhere else that he goes. But in this place specifically, he gets there eventually, but he starts by by talking about God as creator, by talking about God as designer. And I was like, I, I do not understand it. But here's what I came to realize, that, that Paul, again, he eventually does get to the gospel, but he starts here because he knows who he's talking to. He knows who he's talking to. I, I mentioned the Epicureans and the Stoics. That, that is his audience, right? This, these are two schools of philosophical thought. The word philosophy, you guys, the, like, y'all have heard that word. You're familiar with that word. Philosophy is, it's actually a Greek word. It comes from the Greek word philosophia which is two Greek words, one being philo, which means, really? Come on, Truett students, what are we doing? Philo means love. And then sophos, I'm not even going to ask, that one's, not as, uh, that one's not, as, not as common. That means wisdom. So philosophy is literally the love of wisdom. And, and what I found that was really interesting, again, Paul knows his audience. The reason that he starts with, with God as designer is because of who he's talking to so these epicurean and stoic philosophers all those verbs that we read back whenever we were talking about how god was the creator and the designer of all things they do every single one of those things we talked about how uh god or paul says that god made everything that he gives reason to everything that he satisfies everything that he is the creator and what do these people do as as philosophers what do they do They make rules. They give reason as to why things are the way they are. They try to satisfy their own questions about life with with their own answers. They create solutions. They they try to come up with systems and explanations for all of life. Literally what is happening here is these people are playing designer. And that's why Paul starts here. They're playing creator, and Paul knows... That it's only when you understand that God is the designer of everything, that God, not you, but God is the designer of all things, that you will be able to realize that he is also the definer of everything. So he starts there because he's got to get them to see, listen, you aren't the designer. You don't get to write the rules for your own life. That's his process of thought. And so he knows that he has to help them see that. But look at the transition. Look at the transition. He, he says here, now that you realize that God is the designer, I can tell you the rest of what you need to know. Let, let's pick up in uh, verse 27. Paul continues his argument. Uh, he says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way towards him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being, God, is like gold or silver or stone. An image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness. By a man who he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So Paul eventually gets to the gospel. He eventually gets to Jesus with each and every one of these people. And we see that these people actually will come to Christ. But I think it's so interesting that he builds the foundation first. Paul knows that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, is not something that people can receive while they see themselves as the foremost authority of their own life. The gospel cannot be received if you see yourself as the one in the driver's seat. If you see yourself as the one who gets to write the rules for your life. And these people saw life as something they got to write the rules for. They basically made the decisions for themselves as to what they wanted to do with their life. They wrote the rules themselves. The Epicureans, that that word that we keep on bringing up, that's a school of philosophical thought that basically elevates pleasure above all else. They literally invented the phrase, eat, drink, be merry. That's like their tagline. They are fully in pursuit of, of pleasure and that is how they go about their life they have written that into the law code of life that if you're not pursuing pleasure you're not pursuing anything of value and what does it do it would affect the way that they viewed marriage it would affect the way that they spent their time uh, i mean it affected all of life because they saw themselves as designer the stoics were the same way the stoics were a different school of thought i told you that they saw god in everything the trees the plants the birds all the animals but, but the Stoics, they elevated not pleasure, but self-discipline. They, they elevated uh, the like, personal enlightenment and devotion. That's kind of how they went about life. That's the rules that they wrote into life, personal discipline and self-control. And, and that affects all of life for them as well. It affected their ambitions. It affected their future. It affected what they chased after, the way they viewed their present circumstances. What I'm trying to get you guys to see... Is that when you see yourself as designer, when you see yourself as the one in the seat of foremost authority in your life, it affects every bit of who you are. And God would say, I have a purpose for you. Like, like I get that your sinful nature has a purpose for you and you crave that, that position to, to have the foremost authority in your life, but I have a purpose for you. And my purpose for you is that you know me. That's why Paul says uh, about God, he's not far from us. He wants a relationship with us, but life has to be done his way. Now, you might be sitting there tonight asking, like, all right, why is this such a big deal? I mean, I, I really don't understand it. Like, is it not my life? Is it not ultimately something that I should get to decide how I use it? I ultimately should get to decide what I do with it? Like, are you telling me that I'm really not the one that gets to decide what I do with my own life? Not if you're a follower of Jesus. That's not how it works. See, if you're a follower of Jesus, then you know that you weren't the one who created your life to begin with. You see God as designer, and if you see God as designer, you also see God as definer. He's the right. is the only one with the right to define the rules for your life. So my wife has just taken, uh, well, she's been doing it for about a month and a half now, a new job. And this new job is, uh, it's in foster care, which is something that we really didn't know a ton about. But since she has been uh, doing this new, uh, this new position that she's in, we've gotten to learn a lot about foster care. And um, I don't know how familiar you guys are with the foster care system, but it's, it's really neat. Really, the way that, the, that this system works is uh, you'll have, or her position works, is she will receive calls from the Department for Child and Family Services, otherwise known as DFACS. And DFACS will call and say, hey, we have some kids who are in a troubled situation, and we're wondering if you have any open homes that can take these kids. And these open homes are parents that have signed up to be foster parents, Like, out of the goodness of their heart, they have literally said, we are opening up our home. We're bringing some kids under our roof that are not ours, and we're going to care for them like they are our own. We're going to feed them. We're going to give them their basic needs for life. We're going to teach them. Uh, We're going to to send them to school. Like, we're going to give them everything they need, pulling them out of a difficult circumstance. It's a really, really cool system, right? So, if, if you understand from that what foster care is, I, I want to paint a picture for you. I want you to pretend that a foster kid arrives at the home of a foster parent, right? Again, this parent is, is making the decision to bring someone, a child that is not their own, under their roof and provide for them all of their needs. I mean, that is a, that's a big deal. And I want you to imagine that this foster kid walks into that home, And carries with them a a piece of paper. And uh, upon meeting that foster parent, they walk up to the parent and they hand them this piece of paper. And so the parent takes the paper and they're like, hey, what's this? And and the the kid goes, well, just read it. Don't worry about it. So the parent looks down at the paper and it says, um, rule sheet. I would like my dinner on the table every night by 8 p.m. All right. Pretty straightforward. Um, And then uh, next to that, it says from 830 to 1030 every night, I want video game time and I'd like the TV turned on. I'd like the game console turned on. I'd like everything ready to go. And, And they say there's a third rule every morning. I want candy for breakfast. And so I need you to have candy ready for me on the breakfast table so that I can I can get some nutrients in me and get out to school. How ridiculous of a scenario would that be? A better way to ask the question is how offensive to the foster parent would that be? For for this foster kid to come and bring their own rules to the foster parent, who has out of the grace of their own heart allowed this kid to come under their roof. How offensive to that parent would that be? I mean, how, how little sense does that make? I think you're picking up what what I'm getting at. Because God is designer and God is definer, we come under his roof. Out of the grace of his own heart, he saw fit to, to knit each and every one of you in your mother's womb. And because of that, out of the extravagant grace of his heart, we come under his roof. And how offensive to your creator your designer, is it for you to bring to him your list of rules and says, this is my way. This is how things work. Y'all, we need this foundation if we're going to talk about what it looks like to be godly men and women. We don't get to write the rules because we're stepping under his roof. You know, we do this same thing today. We, we see this across the board. We, we see this so often, especially in election season, right? We think that in our society that we get to write the rules for what marriage is. We think that in our society we get to write the rules for uh, what, what we get to do with life in the womb. We think that in our society, in our culture, that we get, to, we get the right to define the rules for what gender is. It's not how it works we're not the designer. God is. And because of that, he is the definer of all things. If God is the designer and he designed all of life with a purpose, we do not get to make those calls. That is not how it works. The reality is is that when you create something, you automatically assume a status of superiority to it. And so, the first and foremost authority for all of life is our creator. And many people Many people see this as a burden. Many people see this as something that is, that is taxing, that, that is like, man, I don't want to live under that. But for us to see God's design for our life as a burden, we're missing out on so much of what he has for us. We're missing out on so much because we forget that because God is creator, he's seen the end from the beginning. Remember that verse that we read about how God knows each and every day of our life from the beginning? A God that knows that has your best interests in mind. See, we fall under this, this like false impression that we know better. And that's the reason that we see living under God's design as a burden. But it is most certainly not. His purposes for us, his design for our life, is far better than anything we can conjure up on our own. Because he's the designer. And because of that, he is the definer. And as we talk over the next few weeks about what it looks like to be godly men and godly women, we aren't just talking, hear this, we aren't just talking about a way of doing things. We're not just talking about like, hey, give this a shot. We're talking about the way. Like there is no other way for you to go about your life and experience life to the fullest. This is the best way because God is the creator and the designer. This is the way that will bring you life and life to the fullest. We need a death grip on these truths if we're going to understand what it looks like to be godly men and godly women. I want to invite the band to come up. As they're heading this way, I want you to know these truths most certainly have an impact on the way that we view gender. Like they most certainly have an impact on the way that we view what it looks like to be a godly man and what it looks like to be a godly woman, but it has so much more of an impact or it has an impact on so many other things. Seeing God as the definer, the designer of our life It impacts, it changes, it affects everything about our life. If you view God as the designer and the definer of your life, that that his way is the best way, that he has the first and foremost authority in your life, it will change the way you go about your dating relationships. It will change the way that you go about your marriages. It will change everything about the way that you handle your money. It will, change, it will change how you raise your kids one day. Again, this is the way. God has been so clear in his word. It doesn't just speak to, to our, his design for man and woman, but it speaks to his design for everything. We live under the roof of the designer. It all starts with understanding that God is the designer, and because of that, he's the definer. So do me a favor, over the next few weeks, as we talk about what it looks like to be a godly man and a godly woman, approach it with those truths in mind. I want to give you guys a challenge. Um, I want to turn, and you guys can turn with me if you want. I, I pulled a few verses out of it. Psalm 139. You can turn with me there, you can read alongside of me if you want, but but I want to read Psalm 139 over us right now. And the challenge that I want to give each and every one of you is to read this chapter of scripture for yourself every day this week. Like literally from today, starting tomorrow, until next Thursday when we talk about God's design for men. I want you to read this text for yourself, to remind yourself of the truth that God is the designer, to to sear that truth into your brain. I'm telling you, if you can grasp the truth, this is one of my favorite chapters in Scripture. If you can grasp this, it will change the way that you view all of life. Let me read this over you. If I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, and the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is as bright as day, for darkness is as light with you. Listen to this part. You formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. How vast is the sum of them? If I would count them, they're more than the sand. I'm still, I awake and I'm still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. O men of blood, depart from me. They speak against you with malicious intent. Your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with complete hatred. I count them my enemies. David, they're speaking about people who do not hold God in the view that they should. Verse 23 Search me, O God, and know my hearts. Try me and know my thoughts, and see if there be any grievous way within me, and lead me in the way everlasting. First of all, scripture is incredible, but that truth is mind-blowing, mind-blowing, that God designed each and every one of us, but that has implications for how we live, so my challenge to you, read that each and every day this week. Let me pray for us. Let me invite you guys to stand. Lord, you are so good. You are so, so wise, so worthy of our praise. God, you are the center of our life. And God, as we, we sing this song, I pray that these words would be true. That, Lord, you, you would be the center of each and every one of our hearts because you, in grace and mercy, saw it fit to design us with, with intricacy, with, with such, uh, such work and effort, God, such, such care. Lord, I pray that these truths would impact the way that we go about this week. That, God, you would change us from the inside out. Father, we love you. It's in your name we pray.